This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We're going to look back and we're going to wonder how things went for everybody for any number of reasons during the pandemic. And in some cases, no real problem. In other cases, major problems. And in some cases, well, we're not quite sure yet. But it has impacted kids who play sports. And even now, you think about it. Baseball, soccer, those outdoor sports, even track and field, summer football would be coming. All of those things have been affected by this. And Whitecaps London is a high-performance club right here in this city, kind of in this area. And they've done something to look into this. They want to know how kids are doing. So they put together a survey. And joining us right now is Abby Lezazidis, who is able to take us through this survey. And, Abby, we really appreciate you taking the time for us. Well, I thank you uh, for for providing us the amplification and and the space to get our message out here, for sure. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit about kind of this past year. Give us a sense of the on-again, off-again, or how much of the on-again, off-again there has been when it comes to playing soccer, either indoor or outdoors. Well, I mean, there's been uh, at least seven or eight interruptions of on and off, uh, in and out uh, for soccer so far since the pandemic first hit us in March, early March of you know, 2020 and finding out that we were shutting down initially and then going to online. So, yeah, I mean, we've come in and out eight or nine times and each time it's been a moment of of glory and a moment of disappointment for sure for everyone. (laughs) That's tough. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's kind of what we've been going through. Did you have a sense even before you put a survey together to ask how kids were doing, how they felt their mental health was faring? Did you have a sense of overall how the kids, the players may have been doing? Well, absolutely. I mean, if there's one thing that we've done as a club, and, and there's been other clubs as well in the city that's done that have done a good job, and, and clubs right across you know the province that have kept their pulse on their club. I mean... There's been two types of clubs, ones that have continued to to show some uh, movement, to stay positive, to keep their members engaged, and others that just don't have that means sometimes to do it, right? We're blessed and fortunate that we have the means that we've been able to continue to try and keep the kids and provide that hope for both parents and, and kids. But, yeah, we we had an idea, but this idea came from a group of 17 clubs, uh, that put together the survey and sent it through their memberships. So when we talk about these numbers that we have, uh, Mike, this isn't London. This is so consistent across the province for for these age brackets of anywhere from kids that are eight years old, like the beginning of grassroots, to like 19, age 19. I mean, it is crazy and staggering how consistent the worry is the, the stress, the anxiety levels, and and the depression that's seriously starting to really hit uh, our members. And that's all you sports too, Mike, I think I can say, not just soccer. Yeah, absolutely. Abby Lezizidis joining us. 
Whitecaps London. Well, then let's talk about what the numbers have indicated in this survey that does go all over the place. What does it say? Well, I'll share this. 86%. Oh, by the way, 3,700 people responded to our survey in four days. All right. So just that's a pretty decent number, pretty decent (laughs) window in a four day period. 86% lack social connect. 82% 82% loss of routine, 67% loss of structure without soccer in their life. Two in five, this one's crazy, two in five identified suffering from anxiety, stress, and worry. One in five noted depression. That's massive. One in five kids noted depression. 40% reference exercise and lack of physical activity as a thing that they miss the most without having organized soccer activities. And that's the key piece is organized. And the last one was 32% miss their friends, their teammates, right? So these are some very uh, significant, significant numbers that we're looking at right now of where we're at. Wow. Well, Abby, thank you for sharing those with us. As we close out, do we have any kind of idea? Obviously, the lockdown makes things pretty challenging when it comes to, to getting things back going, but are you are you all set with a plan in place if all of a sudden a green light shines? Uh, absolutely. I mean, our governing body, Ontario Soccer, has been at the forefront of, you know, on March 13th or March 25th, they sent a letter to Dr. Williams uh, indicating and outlining a, a return to play proto- enhanced protocol. Uh, because again, at the end of the day, we all know COVID's real. We're not sitting here as leaders of organizations, you know, sending the message that we don't believe in what's going on. We know it's real, but we also know that there needs, we need to find a medium where there's a space in here for a practical, organized return to play to keep the kids safe, to keep the family safe, but also help get these numbers down, right? That's the focus. So, yeah, we do have a plan. We're ready to rock it as soon as we're allowed collectively to make it happen. We're going to be back out on those fields, and we can't wait, Mike, to hear those laughs, those smiles, the the giggles, and all the sweat happen again soon. Man, I hope we're getting close, and I think we are. And have you alerted the province about this and and the numbers that you've come up with? Yes, yes. We actually sent a, uh, a, on Tuesday, April 27th, we actually sent a letter to the Honorable uh, Premier Doug Ford and his office, and so did Ontario Soccer as well, who's our governing body. Uh, They sent one on March 25th. So, Yes, we've communicated not only uh, through socials, but we've done it properly. We've emailed the uh, we've emailed properly, and we're hoping to get some type of response. The letter that Mike Ontario Soccer sent on March 25th that was phenomenally written, incredibly detailed, with lots of data from both pediatricians, uh, psychologists, and everyone across the spectrum is still unanswered by the province. So that's where mm-hmm. we're at. We're, we're looking for some help here. We're looking to give us some hope. Uh, even if they say uh, June 20th is when you'll be allowed back, that gives us time, that gives every other club time to plan and make it happen and do it right. So 
that's where we're at, Mike. Thank you. Abby, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's something we'll have to talk about again, and hopefully uh, we can talk about smiling and giggling and laughing and running around on a soccer pitch pretty soon, too. Really appreciate it. You keep safe. Thank you for your time, and thanks for providing this outlet for us to share the message. Have a great day. Always. Here is a thing. The Ontario Hockey League is going to be having a lottery for its upcoming priority selection. That's essentially its draft. The reason they have to do it is there was not an OHL season to determine any kind of draft order. So they're going to be having this on Wednesday. And we had an opportunity about two hours ago to speak with OHL Commissioner David Branch about that and obviously about a few other things. And we bring you that conversation right now. One of the first things we asked Mr. Branch was what it's been like to take the first step now toward a 2021-2022 season. Well, I mean, uh, the past week has been maybe one of the lows, of course, uh, as we had to, uh, you know, acknowledge that there was just no practical, reasonable way uh, that we could get started. And and that's so hurtful, you know, to all our players. And and we recognize that. And to our fans. Um, So... Uh, now that we've got that behind us, uh, and, and you know, Mike, we were totally committed and focused on returning to play this year, that we had not looked at next steps if in the event, you know, we did not play. So now we're in that, in that mode. And it, it does give you a renewed sense of energy and hope. And, you know, we're all moving now towards 21-22 season and really excited to do so. How many ifs still exist? Do you, can you help yourself from looking back and saying, if this had happened at this time, or, or if this had taken place you know, in November or February or March or whatever, do those creep in for you? Um, well, the, the one thing that uh, you know, was clear in our mind is that we can look every player and family and our fans in the eye and say, we gave it our best shot. We left no stones unturned. And we were committed, our owners and everyone involved with our teams, totally committed to return and play. And the one thing, you know, that I can also categorically state is that there was never an opening provided to us to return and play uh, given the COVID conditions uh, by public health and, and other government agencies until about a week before uh, the new outbreak occurred and the new lockdown occurred. And I say week was really a couple of days. And and we were getting ready with the province to make a, an announcement. We were all positive and excited. And then all of a sudden, uh, the new outbreak and, you know, we just found ourselves uh, that we could not return and play, and then the lockdown uh, presented itself, and that's when it became unreasonable. But there was never any other opportunity because of, you know, the conditions in the province that we could return and play. 
We're talking with the commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League, David Branch. Well then, let's look at the announcement this week that talks about a draft lottery, something that has never been done. So I guess we're at OHL priority selection lottery stage. What was it like to kind of look at the options for what to do going forward, given that you weren't able to have a season, not even able to have a little bit of a season where you could at least say, well, here are the standings. I mean, this this is blank slate. Correct. It was unprecedented, of course. And uh, I must say that, uh, you know, I, I give our league and our team so much credit because there was not a lot of debate. There was a complete understanding. And we were all uniform, uniform that we had to move forward. And when we presented an option to our return to play committee, uh, they quickly endorsed it. And that's, you know, the lottery process that we're going to be having May 5th to determine uh, the order of selection and in subsequent rounds, uh, et cetera. And then it was taken to our governors and, and it was uh, uh, endorsed as well. So, I mean, there wasn't a lot of debate. There was the understanding and uh, it's a computerized numerical uh, program that determines uh, the order of selection. And so it's uh, something we all feel confident with and our, League lawyer will be overseeing it, etc., uh, etc., et and we're really, really excited. I mean, the response has been overwhelming, quite frankly, to the May fifth uh, uh, date, and, and we're really looking forward to it. Did you ever consider ping pong balls? Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that uh, in this day and age, uh, you know. Uh, and dealing with young people, as we do, uh, to utilize a computerized system of sorts was the way to go. And so um, uh, that's why we embraced it so quickly. And, and uh, we're, we're very more than comfortable with the process. So what will the process produce then on the 5th? How, take us through how it works. <laughs> well, um, the... the uh, Day will be, or the, the draft lottery process will be led by OHL Vice President Ted Baker. Um, the uh, outline of the program and, and how we arrived at the order of selection will be explained for everyone's benefit. And then Mr. Baker will announce the order of selection, starting with, uh, you know, the last team to select in the first round to the team that selects first uh, in the uh, first round. And then thereafter, Mike, what will happen is that the team that selects last in the first round by way of the lottery will then select first going into the next round and so forth. So it's uh, it's something that our teams embraced, as I say, uh, going into this uh, you know, everyone has got a 5% chance of getting that first pick overall. And uh, uh, I think that uh, it's about as fair as you could possibly hope for. We're talking with David Branch, Commissioner of the Ontario Hockey League. David, you've been in hockey and uh, you've been on so many sides of it. Evaluating players is so important this past year. Here we go. It's unprecedented again in terms of evaluating players. How did teams feel about the fact that you're going to be selecting players that really you, you haven't had a lot of chance to see? 
Yeah, and Mike, that was always top of mind when discussing when we would conduct our priority selection. And, uh, and of course, uh, I mean, we're slight, a slight change to that in that we're going to hold our draft over two days. Uh, the first three rounds will be on the evening of Friday, June 4th, and then the balance uh, of the draft uh, is on Saturday, June 5th. And, and I mean, our team's recognized, you know, and we're challenged on, can we proceed with a draft at that particular time, given the COVID conditions and challenges, you know, to evaluate players. And we were uniformly told once again by our teams, yes, we can. And as I touched on, you know, the computerization and technology and determining the order of selection for the draft, I mean, our teams in many cases are relying heavily on video and other electronic means to do evaluation of players, which is in some respects uh, unprecedented to the level and extent it is being used, but certainly it has been a part of the landscape now for several years. So our, our teams feel comfortable, and, and uh, uh, you know we're really excited about what that day brings to our league in terms of new players, as we refer to them, the next wave of talent. So it's a, it's a great day for those players and families and our teams. In closing, you had a line about development of players, and it's one of those things that seems to fit this situation maybe better than any other. We've got players who maybe have not played in over a year by the time they get back into game action in the Ontario Hockey League in 2021-2022, but you compared development of players to water. Can can you go through that and, and what that <laughs> what that's like? Yeah, I, I mean, it's not very scientific, I'm sure, in the eyes of many people. But, uh, you know, for many, many years, uh, I coached minor hockey. I was a, a real uh, student of watching young people, how they evolved and developed on the ice, off the ice. And I became firmly convinced that players are, you know, in many ways, are like water. And you... Water finds its own level, and, and players will find their own level. And I also just, you know, for a quick view right now, too, on that, Mike, you look at the world under 18 and the incredible performance by Team Canada under 18, uh, and in particular, those 13 OHL players, who many, you know, of course, were challenged with ice time and the opportunity to train on the ice. But it also goes to all the training mechanisms and other features around modern-day training that so many players have embraced. Well, it's great to feel that the march toward 2021-22 is there. Any concerns, anything else on your mind as as we kind of get going on all of this? Uh, no, only optimism. Uh, we're, we're really excited Uh I think like most people, uh, we recognize that, uh, you know, we're, we're entering the third period here in many ways of, of the pandemic. And by working together, like you hope a team works together, uh, we will reach our common goal of being able to return to normalcy as much as possible. And in terms of hockey, that means 
returning to the ice, returning to the action, getting our communities excited again uh, for OHL action. David, thanks so much for the time today. Keep safe. You too, Michael. Thank you very much. That's David Branch, OHL Commissioner. How about we kick off London Live with something that has maybe, I'm not even sure, maybe virtually nothing to do with COVID-19. But it's a big announcement. It's a big deal for the City of London. Virtually nothing to do with COVID-19. Emission-free LTC vehicles. What do you think? That's where we're going to start because this is becoming... A reality. It's been talked about, but it's becoming a reality. Joining us right now, Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer. Councillor Helmer, how are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me on to talk about something positive and exciting. Hey, we love talking positive and exciting. And am I correct, do you think, that I'm trying to make a connection to COVID-19? I, I don't think there's a direct one. There isn't. It's nice to talk about something uh, that's not about the pandemic, and uh, I think it's really positive that we're moving forward on electrifying or you know, otherwise transitioning to zero-emission buses um, at London Transit, and this is a major step forward uh, coming up with the detailed implementation plan about how we're going to do that. It's going to be obviously phased in over time. You know, if we just bought some diesel buses, we're not going to retire them before they're at the end of their life cycle, but um, starting to move forward buying new buses that are electric, getting those on the road. I think it's going to be really excited, right? Really exciting for London. Let's look at the timeline here, because this isn't something that was brought up at the beginning of the week or at the beginning of the pandemic. This stretches back a little ways. What prompted the initial discussion about zero emission buses? Well, transit fleets all over the world are moving towards zero emission buses. You know, California, North America is pretty far down that road. And uh, New Flyer is located. They make the buses we use in London Transit. They're located in Winnipeg, and Winnipeg's had an electric bus on the road for years, uh, trying it out and testing it. So it's been in the in the works for a while. But the federal government has really focused on transitioning transit vehicles and getting buses onto uh, zero emission platforms, and they're providing money to make that transition happen sooner than it would have otherwise. And so we're starting to see transit systems all over North America move towards. Uh, electric vehicles they they cost a little bit more up front you know you have to do the charging infrastructure the the buses themselves cost a little bit more up front but they pay off in the long run because the operating costs are much lower um, and then you've got the added benefit of it's much quieter you know riding on a bus that's electric powered it's like driving an electric car if you've ever had that opportunity it's very quiet it feels very different and um, it's also super good for the environment you know all those diesel particulate uh, matter that's coming out of the tailpipe that's all gone so even even listening to a bus go by your house, it's so quiet. You know, you don't have the noise from the bus. Riding the bus is better. It's better for the environment. It saves money. So it's really positive, and uh, I'm glad that we're getting to this point uh, here in London. And it's 2021 right now. Sometimes we still have to look at a calendar to figure out what day of the week it is, what year of the millennium it is. But it's 2021. And when could we actually see one of these buses or more of these buses on the road? What What would that date be? Yeah, I think we're tracking to having the first buses uh, on the road sometime in 2022, I think near the end of the year. Um, you know, the, the key part right now is coming up with a detailed implementation plan because it's not quite as simple as just swapping out diesel bus for an electric bus. You know, we have to figure out, are, are we going to charge them 
at the bus barns, you know, where we store the buses overnight. Um, are we going to charge them on the road with opportunity chargers that are at essentially at bus stations, um, bus stops throughout the city? Um, is there going to be some combination of those things? Which routes are we going to uh, electrify? Uh, are we going to have the electric buses sort of moving throughout all the different routes in the city or, or concentrate them into particular routes? So all those details need to be worked out. And some of the changes, you know, uh, putting in chargers at the uh, transit facilities, for example, uh, those are pretty big changes. And so we're going to have to plan out how we're going to do that. Uh, we've got two different locations, the one on Highbury and the one on Wonderland. Um, making sure that we do that in a way that's going to be good value for money and, and use the space we've got now. And we've got a plan to replace the uh, existing facility at Highbury. Uh, so we need to replace it with something different. We need to figure that out now. So all that work has to happen now. Once we know what we're going to do, I think the first tranche of buses would be in uh, 2022. And it would be wonderful to get some of them out there on the road so people can see what they're like, uh, experience what it's like to ride an electric bus. And we can start saving money on the operating costs. You know, one of the things I really like about this idea is instead of buying diesel from, from somebody who sells diesel, uh, we'll be buying the power from London Hydro. And the city of London owns London Hydro. So, <laughs> you know, it's a lot better. You know, you think you're saving money, plus you're buying it from yourself. Uh, so I think that's that's a really good uh, win-win uh, for the citizens of London. You know, I think it's going to really, from a financial perspective, really pay off for us. We're talking with Ward 4 Councillor Jesse Helmer about zero-emission buses. Do we, maybe it's too early for this, but do we know what kind of savings we might be able to find in all of this, or does that kind of come out after we run it for a while? Yeah, so, you know, the uh, upfront capital is a bit higher. So, you know, you could imagine, you know, a diesel bus would be, say, six or $700,000 uh, to buy a diesel bus and a uh, electric bus is going to be more like a million dollars for the same kind of bus. So it's more up front. And then you've got to put in the capital. But those buses, you know, um, we spend millions of dollars a year on diesel. And if we can save, say, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year over the life cycle of a bus, you know, that can really that can really result in a lot of savings. So, you know, it is something that it pays off sort of at, around the five or six year mark uh, of having the buses up and running. You know, I think one of the key things is to see how they perform, you know, you can do all the modeling you want, but I think it's important to see how they perform in real life. Uh, you know, do the batteries last as long as the manufacturers are suggesting? And that's one of the reasons why you want to start small, you know, take a look at it, make sure you don't, you know, buy a whole bunch all at once and start replacing uh, buses that don't need to otherwise be replaced um, before their time. You know, we want to take it in a phased approach. We want to be careful to make sure we're actually realizing those savings that we're, we're expecting. And, uh, you know, I think things are looking really good. Like, this is something that's going to save from an operating cost perspective, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars a year um, once it's all up and running and we've electrified the entire fleet. But it'll take us time, right? I think it'll be over the next sort of 12, 13 years uh, before we've replaced all of the diesel buses. But I think the sooner we start doing that, the sooner we're going to start realizing some of those things. And the reason that this has become a story now, or this this has kind of become a discussion again now, is we've had approval. Is that what this comes down to? Yeah, the Transit Commission just uh, hired the Canadian Urban Transit Research and Innovation Consortium. So these are the kind of experts in Canada about electrification, zero emission buses, to, to develop the implementation plan. So how are we going to do that? What kind of changes do we need to make? What are the different options? You know, do we want to go with hydrogen? Uh, fuel cell type buses. We want to go with battery electric buses. 
uh, there's different sort of pros and cons to those different kind of models. Um, they're going to come up with that plan. We're going to have some update reports. We'll have one in May, sort of about um, where we're headed with a pilot, see if we can get something going uh, with Qtrick. That's the name of that organization. And then we'll have another update in August, which is sort of like the initial uh, requirements. You know, what do we think we need for 2022? Because we have to go through the city budget update process through the multi-year budget. Um, let the city know we need a little bit more money for this, we need a little less money for that. We need to give them a sense of what the budget implications are. Uh, so get that report in August, and then we'll probably have a final report right now tracking towards November. Uh, and if the commission decides to go ahead at that point, I think that's when we would be ordering buses uh, to have them manufactured, uh, produced, delivered to us, and then be on the road sometime in 2022 so there's a lot to do, um, and I will say I'm very impressed with the Transit Commission staff. You know, they're managing through this uh, pandemic. I know I said I wouldn't talk too much about COVID, but it's been very hard for transit, for transit operators. It's been a really difficult time, and the management team at LTC has managed to get through all of that and also move the ball forward on the electric buses, which is quite quite an accomplishment. Great stuff. Councillor Helmer, thank you so much for all your time today. really appreciate it. Thank you, Mike. It's Ward 4 Councillor. Jesse Helmer. So electric buses starting as early as next year, the way the timeline goes, and this incorporates a federal program, and so it doesn't put all of the cost on us, but it will take a while, as Councillor Helmer says, to realize the savings. There is some overhead at first. Electric vehicles cost more than other forms of power in vehicles. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3. 